Hey guys, hope you're doing well. Um, so today we're going to be continuing on our uh, um, our talks about tithing. Uh, is tithing something that the New Testament church, New Testament Christians, is it something that we are required to do? Is it something that should be a part of church membership? Is it something that uh, that pastors and, and leaders require of their people to do in the New Testament church? Or is it something that was part of the Old Testament law? Is it something that has passed away, um, never to be renewed again? Um, and again, just as we're talking about the tithe, and if you haven't had the chance to listen to the first two messages, please, I encourage you to go listen to those first. Um, but, you know, again, we're not saying don't give at all. Matter of fact, as believers, we're supposed to be joyful givers. We're supposed to be hilarious givers. We're supposed to give abundantly from what God has given us. So when we're talking about tithing, we're, we're not saying that you're not supposed to give. We're not saying that at all. Okay. Matter of fact, Jesus heightened things in the New Testament and said, if you know, you were told in the uh, the, before that if you you committed adultery that you know you you've sinned but he says I tell you if you look upon a woman with lust you've committed adultery in your heart and uh, you were told not to kill or not to murder but if you've uh, looked upon someone with hatred in your heart you're you've already murdered them in your heart so things in the New Testament Jesus had a tendency to um, actually make them um, I'm sorry to, to heighten those things rather than to diminish them. So, so again, we as New Testament believers are supposed to be givers, and we're supposed to give uh, not just in the area of tithe, but in the area all the areas of our lives, in the areas of time, in the areas of love, in the area, you know the areas of mercy and and things of that nature. We're to be joyful givers of everything that the Lord has given us. Okay, so today we're going to be speaking specifically of Melchizedek because what teachers of the tithe will tell you is that Melchizedek, sorry, his name is hard to say. Melchizedek uh, was 430 years before the law and he tithed, I'm sorry, Abraham, 430 years before the law, tithed to Melchizedek. And so therefore that makes... Uh, the tithe supersede the law because it happened 430 years before the law came into effect and so and then when the law came into effect came in effect it included the tithes so basically it just carried on throughout the centuries and supersedes the law so now it applies to us today as well as it did back then and so basically we're going to look at hebrews 7 actually we're going to be spending a lot of time in the book of hebrews today so so to clarify, are you saying that's what a lot of pastors use as their... Right. Their... That's that's what a lot of pastors, what a, preach, a lot of preachers who, who teach the law, that's what they teach. They teach that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek before the law ever even came to, into effect. So that means that it's, that it's something that's greater than the law. And so we're, we're going to look at that whole situation of Abraham tithing to, to Melchizedek. We're going to look in Hebrews 7 and, and try to understand who Melchizedek was. And not only that, but we're going to go throughout the book of Hebrews. Because if, again, we so often will, will, will isolate a particular scripture and make it fit what we want it to say rather than looking at the whole thing in context and understand what it's trying to say to us through the context of the whole. And sometimes that takes several chapters. And actually, we're going to go through four or five chapters in Hebrews to get an understanding. Because to understand Hebrews 7, where it's talking about Melchizedek and the Melchizedek priesthood and and Abraham tithing to Melchizedek and things of that nature, we have to understand what the book of Hebrews is, what the book of Hebrews was written to. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews because unlike a lot of books of the New Testament, it doesn't say who wrote it. But um, so we don't know who it was written or we don't know who wrote it and we don't know specifically who it was written to. It doesn't say it was written to people in Ephesians. Ephesus or people that were in Laodicea, people who were in Jude, it doesn't say where it was written to. One thing we do know is that it was written to Jewish Christians. 
okay? And you can get this by looking at the context of the book. It was written to Jewish Christians who had once been Jews, who had become Christians, and now because persecution was coming, they were in danger of, of turning away from Christianity and returning to Judaism. That's why it talks about how, like, if, if, you, if you go back to the law, you're sacrificing, uh, you know, you're, going, you're crucifying afresh the, the blood of Jesus and trampling upon the blood of Jesus and counting it as a, as a, a, a null thing and stuff. And so, again, the, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers or believers who at least were steeped in the uh, Old Testament and the and the things of the law, and they they because of persecution, some of them were in danger of returning back to that and going from the greater, which was Jesus, unto the lesser, which was the law, and that is the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews was written to to show them the how how much more perfect. Jesus was than the Old Testament law, and that if you return back to the Old Testament law, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for you because you're saying that Jesus' blood wasn't enough. I need to go back to the blood of bulls and goats. Okay? So in Hebrews 7, verse 1, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met... Now, and again, I know that as I say that, you're saying, well, what does that have to do with Melchizedek and tithing and things like that? And that's the whole thing, because we're going to see as we get into it, this, in Hebrews 7, it talks about Abraham tithing to Melchizedek, but, but the... Um, but the subject of that scripture is not talking about the tithe. It's using the tithe as a reference, okay? Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, we're going to go back to Genesis 14 and look at this later. It says, To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. Now, notice that he says spoils there. He doesn't say tithe. that says he gave him a tenth of all the spoils. And we're going to understand that later. He says, was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem. He's talking about Melchizedek, which is king of peace. Verse 3, it says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, Let's stop for a second and understand what he's saying here. He's not saying that Melchizedek didn't have a father. He's not saying that he didn't have a mother and that he, he didn't have beginning of days or end of life and that this was Jesus in the Old Testament. What he's saying is that the writer, when he talks about Melchizedek, he purposely left those things out so that it would be a picture of what Jesus is. Okay? He's, so we know that Jesus Christ was the only incarnate birthed by a virgin son of god right and we know that that this didn't happen several times throughout history this happened one time in history okay so basically what he's saying when he says that melchizedek was without father without mother without genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life he's not saying that this is how it actually was he's saying that this is how the story portrays him to give us a to point to Jesus and, and to make it a type and a representation of the Jesus whom he was typifying. Which is like, I like when it says, like this, like the son of God, right. he abides a priest perpetually so that, so that without mother, without father is kind of this idea of perpetuality and no end and no beginning. Right. And that, and that also shows that he's not talking, that he wasn't Jesus in a pre-incarnate state. He says he was like the Son of God. It doesn't say he was the Son of God. Okay? And again, we know that there was only one person who, who was born without father and one person who was born supernaturally, and that was Jesus. Okay? Verse 4, Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest, again, spoils. Now it doesn't say tithe here. Now when we go to Genesis 14, it will say tithe, but it's only saying that is 
that in the sense that it was a tenth of what he gave. But Abraham is giving of the spoils of war, not of his own personal wealth. Okay? And we're going to see that. And in the context of him giving a tenth of these spoils, the context is, now observe how great this man, Melchizedek, was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth. So here, Abraham, who all the Jewish people respected as their father and they felt he was the greatest of the greatest. He, they're showing here even Abraham humbled himself and acknowledged that there was someone greater than he. Yeah. And in verse 5, and it says, Those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment, listen to this, in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, the, although these are descendants from Abraham. Do you see that? So in other words, what he's saying in verse 5 here is that the tithe was a part of the law. It was a part of the Levitical uh, tabernacle system, which we as New Testament believers, we believe that that's been done away with through Jesus Christ, right? Uh, that was the lesser. Now the greater Jesus Christ has come. All those things in the Old Testament were types and shadows of the greater that was to come. The sacrifices of bulls and goats that they did year after year, the sprinklings with blood, the washings, all those things could never cleanse you from sin. They were like the animal skins that God gave to Adam and Eve, and whereas they covered their sins, they could not take away sin. And so all these things were pointing to a day when a greater fulfillment was to come, and that fulfillment was in Jesus Christ, and there will never be a greater than Jesus, because he was the original plan of the Father. Even in Genesis chapter 3, when the Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, he says there will come one who will bruise the serpent's head, and, and that Eve was going to give birth to this one. The, all the Old Testament was pointing to this one, this man, Christ Jesus, because all throughout the Old Testament, all they could do was cover sins. They could never take away sins. And so... So in this story, then, I guess Abraham then is pointing to Melchizedek. Right, who, right. Was, who was a, a type, type and a shadow of he who was to come, which is Jesus Christ, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, again, to fully understand this, we're going to have to go throughout the whole um, first seven chapters of Hebrews, okay? So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Because we're going to get, we're going to try to get an understanding of what the book of Hebrews is saying. And by extension, what Hebrews chapter 7 is saying. In Hebrews 1, verse 1, it says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So again, these first few chapters of Hebrews are going to lay a foundation showing that Jesus Christ is greater than angels. Jesus Christ was greater than Moses. Jesus Christ was greater than Aaron. Jesus Christ was greater than the Levitical priesthood. So again, all these things are pointing to the greatness of who Jesus Christ was, okay, or who Jesus Christ is. Um, in chapter, um, let's see. Chapter 2, verse 1. Um, actually, back to Hebrews 1, verse 3. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Listen to this in verse 4. Having become as much better than angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So it's saying in chapter 1 of Hebrews that Jesus is greater than angels. Now, I think this is really, a, really interesting right now. In the early church, they had the Gnostics who had all these mediators to get to God. And just like today, we have mediators to get to God, which are other than Jesus. And one of those is Mary. A lot of people use Mary as a mediator to get to God. A lot of people use angels. I talk to angels and angels tell me what God is saying. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. 
Okay, and if you read the book of Hebrews, you see that there is no other mediator between God and man but Jesus Christ alone. We don't need angels. We don't need Mary. We don't need priests. We don't need a pope. We don't need other people to intermediate between you and God because you have, if you are a believer, the man Christ Jesus. Okay, so again, the book of Hebrews is laying a foundation. The first thing that it starts out is by saying that God, or I'm sorry, Jesus Christ is greater than angels. Okay, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses. So now he's comparing, first of all, in chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, he, uh, the writer of Hebrews compared Jesus to angels and said Jesus is greater than angels. Now, in Hebrews chapter 3, he's going to compare Jesus to Moses. Okay? Verse 2, He was faithful to him, God, who appointed him as Moses also was in all of his house. For he, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. So it's saying in verse 3 that Jesus is greater than Moses. Now this is a heavy statement to people who are thinking of turning back to Judaism because Moses, even for us as Christians, as, as believers in Jesus, when we look at the Old Testament, we see that Moses was the great deliverer, right? He delivered the people of Egypt, uh, the, the people of Israel from bondage and slavery to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh, who is a type and shadow of Satan and, and, and their sins. And he, de he delivered them from the bondage of Pharaoh and brought them out of Egypt. So Pharaoh, uh, so especially to the Jewish mind and to Jews today, Moses was their second greatest person. Okay, because he was their great deliverer who delivered them from the bondage and slavery of Pharaoh. Okay, it says, verse 4 For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Verse 5 Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ, look at verse 6, was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. You see that? So again, he's saying, number one, Jesus is greater than angels. Chapter three, Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, chapter four talks about it talks in the end of chapter three and, and chapter four are talking about don't fall away through unbelief. In other words, there again, he's exhorting these believers not to go back to Judaism because it is going from the greater, which is Jesus Christ, to the lesser. Okay. And isn't in chapter four and five, he's also talking about um, Jesus being greater than their high priest. Um. In, in chapter 5, yeah, but chapter five. looking still at chapter 4, though, in verse 1, it says, Therefore let us fear, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of, any of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have good, good news preached to us, just as they also. He's talking about the people in the wilderness, right? The, the Israelites who, who wandered for 40 years in the wilderness and never entered into his rest. He says, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word which they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Now what's he saying? He's saying this to the people at this time in the book of Hebrews who are in danger of falling away through unbelief and because they're not trusting God. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they, the people of Israel in the Old Testament wilderness, shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in the passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day, say, a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Listen to this in verse 8. 
For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So, again, what he's saying is that if you believe in Jesus, if you follow him and hold to him and cling to him, he will bring you into that rest. And he says here that Joshua was not able to bring them into that rest. So, we talked about angels. Jesus being greater than angels. We talked about Moses, the great deliverer who brought them out of Egypt. He and, and Jesus was greater than him. Now we're talking about Moses, the man who brought them into the promised land. And he still was mean, not able to Joshua? Joshua. I'm sorry. The one who brought them into that promised land. And he still was not able to give them rest. So what's it saying uh, between the lines is that Jesus is greater than also Joshua. You see that? Because we who enter into Jesus are entering into that rest. So, number one, Jesus is greater than angels. Number two, Jesus is greater than Moses. Number three, Jesus is greater than Joshua. Hebrews chapter, let's see. You're in five, right? Yes. Hebrews chapter five. Well, I, I just want to eat, read the, the rest of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11. Actually, verse 8. Let's go back to 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his, Jesus' rest, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us, Hebrew believers who are, who are being tempted to fall away, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast his confession. Let us not fall away. Let us not fall away through unbelief, but let us hold fast that confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And this is very important. Jesus is our high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, but he is one who has never fallen into sin. And this will be important as we go on. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. He says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Sorry, I can't speak English. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he also himself is beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And you see it over and over in the Old Testament. It was commanded of the priests not only to offer sacrifices for the people, but they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Why is that? Because they sinned. The beauty of Jesus is that he never sinned. And so all the sacrifices, all the offering of himself that he did was for us. It was not it was not for his own behalf. He did not have to offer sacrifice for himself because he never sinned. And this is and this whole thing is building up to show why Jesus was so much greater than all these ones that went before him. It says, no one in verse 4 takes this honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he also says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to see what that is in just a minute. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud cryings and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Now he's talking about, obviously, in the Garden of Eden, where Jesus cried and he wept, and it says he even sweat blood when he was going to the cross and said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, your will be done. 
And so even in the moment of the cross, Jesus was being tempted. Satan was tempting Jesus not to go the way that the Father had laid out for him, to disobey the Father, to sin against the Father. Jesus never sinned once in his lifetime. And the Bible says that he was a man just like we are. He was subject to weakness, subject to temptation. He could have sinned, but he chose not to. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. I think that's a really good scripture. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But it doesn't say that those who pray a certain prayer become eternally saved. It says those who obey him. Verse 10, being designated by God as a high, as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay. So, turn to chapter uh, six, seven. So in uh, chapter six again, it talks about the peril of falling away, and uh, those who have once been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and made made partakers and fallen away, you can't renew them because they crucify us again to their shame. Uh, the Son of God and things. And in, ch in chapter 7, so all these things are what lead us up to chapter 7. And he's talking about how Jesus is greater than all these things and stuff. And in chapter, so let's start in verse 1 in chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, and we read it before, but we'll read it again. Priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days that we know of, nor end of life that we know of, but he did have them, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually." Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choices, spoils. And look at this in verse 5. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. So we talked about it in the, the couple times prior to this, how, how the, the tithe went to the Levites. And the Levites could have no, they could own no land of their own. They were completely supported by the people. That's why the problem was in Malachi when God says, you're robbing me, is because the people weren't supporting the Levites. And so the Levites were leaving the temple. The temple's falling into disrepair. It was the Levitical system, the, ta the tabernacle system that God set up to take care of the tabernacle and the sacrifices that, that were all tied up together with it. Can I ask a question? Yes. So in the way that you were showing through the first several chapters that um, Hebrews is talking about how the, the Jewish you know, forefathers and their heroes and their faith that, that Jesus was greater than all of them and greater than the angels and greater than Moses and greater than Joshua and all that, greater than the high priest. Is it also saying in Hebrews chapter 7 that um, Abraham, who they considered their father, you know, their, fa their father, their spiritual father, that even Jesus was greater than Abraham and that was demonstrated by Abraham giving well, to Melchizedek? That's, that's what we're coming to. Okay. Yeah. It says, um, verse 6, But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had, made, who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So it said, um, um, it says that um, Abraham gave till Melchizedek, showing that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Does that make sense? And it showed uh, Melchizedek's greatness in that he also blessed Abraham. There right. Verse six. Yeah. And so, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men, and again, he says, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives him on whom it is witnessed that he lives on. 
And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. Um, for though for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. You see what he's saying? So he's saying that since since Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils till to Melchizedek, since Levi was descended from Abraham, in a sense, Levi was also tithing to Melchizedek. Okay. So in, so in a sense, it was acknowledging again that that Melchizedek was greater than the Levitical priesthood. That right. The, Melchizedek priesthood was greater than the Levitical priesthood. Exactly. And that's the whole thing because it's talking about, it's kind of talking about, because to them, the Levitical priesthood was everything, right? Yeah. To the Jewish mind, and, and again, when the book of Hebrews was written, the temple was still standing. The Levitical sacrifices were still in place. The law was still in place. The, the, the priesthood was still in place. And they were still making sacrifices, animal sacrifices, to please God. So all that stuff was still standing. And so this is the mind of the Jews. The Levitical priesthood is the setup by God in which you worship God. All this was passing away. Okay? He says, um, verse 11, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? So you can see where he's fixing to go here. He's starting to go here to where his place is saying the Levitical priesthood is not the greatest thing. There's something greater than the Levitical priesthood, and that is the priesthood of Melchizedek. For when the priesthood is changed, there, there of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. He's talking about Melchizedek. Melchizedek didn't have to do all these things that the Levitical priests had to do because he wasn't of the tribe of Levi. Matter of fact, Melchizedek wasn't even a Jew. He was a Canaanite. It says, For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to, of, to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still, still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has not become such, not on the basis who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement. In other words, it's not based on your genealogy and because I was born of the tribe of Levi. And that's what he's saying is that Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. How could Jesus be a high priest when the tribe of Levi was the tribe that the, uh, that the Levitical priests came from? And he's saying that there's a priesthood that supersedes the Levitical priesthood that's greater than the priesthood of Levi, that's greater than the Aaronic priesthood, and that is the priesthood of Melchizedek, of which Jesus is a part of. And it's not because he was born into it, but it's because, base, uh, verse 16, it's who, who, is not, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical, physical requirement, not on genealogy, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Now, this is a twofold thing. Number one, it's based on the fact that Jesus never sinned in his entire life. And number two, it's based on the fact that Jesus lives forever. Right. And the Levitical priests, they would die and another high priest would have to be put in the office. Right. And that's the way it happened. You know, the, the high priest in office, he would die and they would put someone else and make him take another person who was of the tribe of Levi, of the sons of Aaron and make him the high priest. But Jesus will never die. So his priesthood will never die. The Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood has passed away forever. Because it has been superseded by the Melchizedek priesthood, which was greater than the Levitical priesthood. And so the, the whole thing about, and, and going back to where it's talking about how, how Abraham tithed to Melchizedek and stuff. And, and again, what, what teachers of, of tithing will say was that, well, because Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, 
to Melchizedek, that means that we Christians in the 22nd century church of America today, we need to be tithing as well because that supersedes the law. Well, if you read it again in context, the whole thing, is, it was not a discourse about tithing. If you read Hebrews 7, the context of Hebrews 7 is not a teaching about tithing and teaching us to tithe or how to tithe or who to tithe to or any of that. The whole thing about the tithing in Hebrews 7 was to show that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Verse 4 says it, Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest wolves. So right. here's their father. They used to say, we're of the father. They used to, the Pharisees used to tell Jesus, but we're of our father Abraham. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but something greater than Abraham is here. Right. Yeah. And just like in John 8, verse 56 through 59, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And so the whole context of Hebrews 7, and again, we cannot use Hebrews 7 to justify tithing because it's not in context about tithing. It is simply, we saw in Hebrews 1 that Jesus is greater than angels. We saw Jesus was greater than Moses. Jesus was greater than Joshua. Jesus was greater than Abraham. Jesus was greater than the Levitical priesthood, greater than Aaron. Jesus was greater than all these things. And that's what Hebrews 1 through 7 is all about. Mm -hmm. Showing that Jesus, who is of the priesthood of Melchizedek, was greater than all these that came before him. And when Abraham tied to Melchizedek, the only reason why he was doing it was to show, oh, this, you are the greater, I am the lesser. It's not setting a precedent in that we are supposed to tithe forever and ever and ever. That's not what it was about. It was simply to show that there was a greater, there was a lesser. Melchizedek was the greater. Abraham was the lesser. And Jesus, by extension, is greater than the Levitical priesthood and everything in the Old Testament, everything that came before it, everything that the Christians in the book of Hebrews were being tempted to fall back to. Which was the law. Which was the law, which could not save, could not forgive you of sins, could not take away sins. Only Jesus could do that. The Aaronic priesthood could not take away sins. The Levitical priesthood could not take away sins. And all that stuff was passing away. And it finally completely went away in the year 70 AD when the temple was completely destroyed. And and from that day until now, there has not been a Levitical priesthood. And there will... and. Even if a temple is built again in Jerusalem, it will be a blasphemy because Jesus' blood is greater than all of that. Okay? So having said all that, turn to Genesis chapter 7. Actually, actually, before we do that, I just want to read Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. He says, So much more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So again, we we have people that want to reinstitute the temple, want to rebuild the temple, reinstitute. And I'm talking Christians. Reinstitute temple sacrifices, the Levitical priesthood. What does this say here? Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Why do you want to go from the greater to the lesser? That's exactly what the the Jewish Christians and Hebrews were doing. They were wanting to go from the greater to the lesser, from the fulfillment back to the types and shadows, back to the things that could only cover sins but could not take away sins. Why would any Christian want to do that? Which is also what Galatians is about. Galatians, Colossians, much of the New Testament. The former priests in verse 23, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Again, they would die. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is also, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled he never sinned separated from sinners 
and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. You see that? So turn to Genesis chapter 14. We're going to look at the story of when Genesis, when uh, uh, Abraham met Melchizedek. Because again, to truly understand any scripture, you have to go to it and read it in its context. Okay? okay we saw, we saw quite clearly, I believe, in, in, in Hebrews chapter 7, that Hebrews 7 was not a discourse on tithing. It wasn't an instructional how-to about tithing. It was simply showing who was greater. And, and the tithe was only just a, 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 a way to show who was the greater and who was the lesser. So you're probably going to cover this. I just have a question. Um, okay, you've just proven that that's not what Hebrews 7 is about. But I have also heard pastors say that, um, that tithing is a part of the new covenant because... Abraham tithed before the law. And is that what you're about to answer? Well, yeah. And again, they, they actually use Hebrews 7 yes, to do is. that as part of what they're doing. Right. But again, we're going to go to to, uh, to Genesis chapter 14 and look at it in context and see, I mean, is that what really happened? Did Abraham really tithe? Uh, was, was this an example of tithing and was it something that Abraham continued to do through the rest of his life? Was it something that he did more than once? Was it, you know, something that was established, right? Okay. So in Genesis 14, verse 1, it says, And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedalaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goam that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Now, it would be nice if they had names like Gil and Fred and things like that, but they don't, and I don't speak Hebrew, so we're just going to do the best that we can. Now, um, in Hebrews, I believe it is 13, we know that, that Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, moved, to Sodom. You're talking about Genesis 13? Genesis 13. What did okay. it say? You said Hebrews. Okay. In Genesis 13, um, Lot moved to Sodom, and so Lot was living in Sodom. Now, so we have these these four kings who make war against these five kings, okay? And one of them is the king of Sodom. And so these guys come, and they fight against them and, and, and things like that. And we'll pick it up in, let's see... Verse 10, now the valley of Sidon was full of tar pits and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. So again, the, the four kings, the king of Shinar, uh, the king of Elisar, Ketelamar, Elam, and Tidal, I guess the five kings, they defeated the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? It says, then in verse 11, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. Look at this in verse 12. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed for he was living in Sodom. So that's the way that they would do in war. They would go and they would defeat the, the, the kings and, and the, the, the warriors and things like that. And basically after that, they just take whatever they want. Anything that looks like it's worth something, they're going to take it. They're just going to take it, right? Because it's the spoils of war. And that's how they did it in those days. Verse 13, Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Look at this in verse 16. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. So everything that the guys stole, Abraham goes back with and with his little army takes them takes everything back, right? 
Verse 17, Then after his return from the defeat of Kedarlaomer, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went, went out to meet him, Abram, Abram, at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And this is where Melchizedek comes in the story. This is the first mention of Melchizedek in the Bible. Okay? It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought, and this is why it talks about without genealogy, without father, because he just comes onto the scene. Boom! There he is. Right? And again, I believe he was a real person. He was a real human being that lived in what was to become Jerusalem later and things. And he was a priest and he was someone that lived and died and all that. But for the sake of the story, it's just, it just like he just appears out of nowhere. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him a tenth of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. So, so Abraham gives a tenth of the spoils okay, to, to Melchizedek. In verse 21, then the king of Sodom says to Abraham, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And again, this is how they did it. They'd go in the battle, they'd, they'd capture the people, they'd capture all their 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 money, their goods, their, their stuff like that, and they would keep them to themselves. And the king of Sodom is saying to Abraham, you can keep the spoils, right? And Abraham said, the king of Sodom, said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, yours for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. So, number one, we saw in Hebrews 7, that he gave Melchizedek of the spoils. Okay? So he didn't go give him a bunch of his sheep and his money? And now, Abraham is is presumably, it doesn't say that he went back home. He's still uh, where he met Melchizedek on the battlefield. He didn't go back home. Now, Abraham, if you read Genesis 4, the 13 and the uh, preceding chapter, Genesis, uh, Abraham is the richest man in the world at this point. And it says nothing about the fact that, okay, so Abraham went to his home, got 10% of all of his cows, got 10% of his donkeys, got 10% of his camels, got 10% of his money, and gave all that to Melchizedek. It says in Hebrews 7 quite clearly that he gave Melchizedek 10% of the spoils that he got from those five kings. So the point is this. Abraham did not give out of his person. And not only that, he gave the rest of the 90% to the king of Sodom. So Abraham gave 100% of the spoils that he got away. He gave 10% to Melchizedek. He gave 90% to Sodom. And Sodom was an unrighteous. Sodom was later destroyed because of its unrighteousness. Now, does this set a precedence? Are we supposed to give 90% of our spoils to the world, to wicked people? So, again, but the whole point of the matter is, is he was giving of the spoils. None of this was his personal wealth. None of this was stuff that he had already owned. This was a a one-time thing. And you never, ever see Abraham any time after this giving any money to anyone else as an act of worship or as an act to God or any of that. Isn't there a place where he said he he hadn't intended to keep any of it for himself in the first place, like before it ever happened? I don't think he... Well, it doesn't say that before it happened, but but he says, I've sworn to God, to the Lord God, most high possessor of the heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say I have made Abram rich. So he had a, a reason for not wanting to do that too. Yeah, but and, the point the point of it is is he didn't keep any of it. Right. And so he didn't give 10% away. He gave 100% away. And he distributed it between Melchizedek and an unrighteous king. Right. 
And then also um, in Hebrews 7, verse 4, it also says, uh, it goes along with what you're saying. It says he gave a tenth of the spoils. Yes. Not of his possessions back right. home. And, so he, gave, he didn't give of his personal possessions. He gave of the spoils. Now also... It says, he, he said in verse 24, I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. So Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre got a, uh, got a share of the spoils. Did Abraham tell them? These were members of his household. Maybe, you know, did, did he tell them also to give a tithe to Melchizedek? So... Uh, the thing is, is to say that Genesis 14 is setting a precedent of the tithe when it was a one-time thing and it was not of his personal finances, of his personal wealth at all, but it was of the spoils. And to say that this sets a precedence for the tithe that, that superseded the law, which came 430 years afterwards and is to be continued today, that is making the Bible say something that the Bible is not saying. If you look at it in context and you think about what it's saying. Now, even still, like even if it did, he, he was a, he was like he was lit, uh, uh, called a priest, uh, and and like has, you know Jesus is the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek, and also in the in like the Levitical priesthood and such like that, where, where the tithe would go. Well. Jesus is the high priest now. Right. So even if, let's pretend that established some tithe or whatever, uh, like, the, the, like, keep, like, the church isn't the priesthood in that sense anymore. Right. And the thing is, is again, we saw in Hebrews 7 verse 5 that the tithe was of the law. Yeah. So, and then... Now, I want you to really think about this for a second, okay? In Genesis 17, Abraham was circumcised. Now, if you say that, well, because Abraham tithed 430 years before the law, that makes it a perpetual thing. Well, Abraham was also circumcised in Genesis 17. Does that mean that we should be circumcised uh, religiously now now Americans obviously we we because of health issues and and things like that and uh, cultural issues we pretty much circumcise all of our male children but it's not a religious thing we don't do it religiously we don't do it to follow a law we don't do it because we feel that God has commanded us it's more of a cultural thing completely irreligious people have their children circumcised because it's more sanitary the circumcision preceded the law, as did also animal sacrifice. Some, there were some uh, animal sacrifice, uh, right? Yes. In Genesis 22, Abraham offered burnt offerings. It was going to be specifically a son. But that's the thing. Again, to say that, well, because Abraham did this 430 years before the law, that makes it a perpetual thing. We don't get circumcised and because and you can be uncircumcised and be a Christian. God is not requiring any human being to be circumcised to be saved. Okay? Matter of fact, in Hebrew, in Galatians it says if if you get circumcised for the law's sake, you might as well emasculate yourself. So again, we don't do things based on the law, which the tithe is clearly of the law. The people in the book of Hebrews were in danger of going back to the law. In, uh, let's see, in Genesis, in, go back to the book of Genesis 20. In Genesis 20, it talks about, now we know that two times when Abram first came into the land, when God told him to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go to a land, I will show you and all this stuff. There were two places where Abram told, uh, told Sarai, his wife, if anybody asks you, you tell them that I'm your, you tell them that you're my sister and that way they won't kill me and take you away from me. And one of those times is in Genesis chapter 20, where, where Abimelech, the, uh, um, one of the kings living in the land, took Sarah to be his wife, and God struck the people with infertility. 
and God was going to kill him and stuff. And then he, he, he said to Abraham, what have you done to me? She's your wife. And, and Abram's, you know, obviously convicted and stuff. And so Abimelech gives Sarai, Sarai back to, to Abraham and God tells him, it's a good thing you didn't touch her because I would have struck you dead. And so Abram and Abimelech gives Abram a thousand pieces of silver. It says nothing whatsoever about Abram tithing those. And again, there is no precedent in Genesis 14 for Abram tithing because it never says any time after that that he or any of his descendants for 430 years after him ever tithed after that. And so to say that that's a precedent without it ever happening again and 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 I heard one person say, well, to say that, you know, the Bible doesn't say that it didn't, that it happened, that's to argue from it not being there or whatever. Well, the Bible clearly tells us in Numbers in Leviticus when the tithe was instituted. Okay? So we know exactly when the tithe was instituted by God. It was 430 years later when the law came into effect. So... The, and, and the whole reason why I say this, because much, very, very much of the New Testament is concerned with going back to the law. Because the greater has come. The types and shadows of the law, the circumcisions, the washings, the sacrifices of bulls and goats, the slaughtering of animals and things like that, the slaughtering of sheep and, and things of that nature, all those have passed away because the greater has come. Even things such as the Sabbath, people want us to observe the Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And now, instead of rest, you know, one day a week where we worship, we're supposed to worship in spirit and in truth at all times. And so the law has passed away, and it's a dangerous thing to want to go back to the law in any place. In any, because it's a slippery slope, right? And I'm not saying that people that teach the tithe are wanting us to go back to the law, but it is a part of the law. Yeah. And it cannot be denied that it's a part of the law. It's a part of the Old Testament tabernacle, Levitical, Aaronic system of worship. And often the same preachers that say, oh, we're not under the law anymore are the same preachers that are preaching that Malachi is for today. Right. So, and, and again, if you go back to the book of Malachi, we talked about it last time, and look in context, well, what was happening? The temple was still standing. God's, God's way of doing it at that time was through yeah, the temple. It, it still existed. The Levitical priesthood existed. And so God wanted them to be supported. Mm-hmm. And part of it's just humanitarian. They had no other means of support. They could not own land. And so God was trying to take care of his people, the Levites and things. So, so I would like to ask you at some point if you might preach on Galatians. Because um, the other kind of, I know what you're not saying because I'm your wife, but... A lot of people take Galatians and say that that we don't have to be obedient to God anymore because that's a part of the law. When, when in actuality, Galatians was literally talking about the ceremonial law that the Jewish Christians right. were gravitating back towards. He wasn't saying you don't have to obey God. He was saying you don't have to be under the Levitical law anymore. So if you could give and, just a and that's brief that's the thing that, that and and we won't talk about Galatians in. Too long context yeah. with the with the tithe, but that is the whole thing. Is that the whole thing in the New Testament is that God did away with the ceremonial portions of the law. Okay, whereas Jesus, in many ways, heightened the moral parts of the law, obedience, obedience and yeah. and loving God with all your heart and 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 circumcision of the heart and not of the flesh. All those things, Jesus heightened the moral parts of the law. But the ceremonial parts of the law, the, the sacrifice of bulls and goats, the washings, the, the circumcisions, the tithe, all that stuff was done away with, never to be instituted again. 
Now, does that mean we give? We don't give? Again, that doesn't mean that at all. And uh, hopefully next time we're going to wrap this up. Um, hopefully next time we're going to talk about what we are supposed to do. Yeah. Because, again, doing away with the law, and, and again, a lot of a lot of churches will do that. You know, since the law is not in effect, we don't have to obey God. That's not it at all. That's not what it's talking about. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about doing away with the cer ceremonial things and getting to the heart of the matter. Amen. Okay? And so, um, yeah. So hopefully, again, next week we'll we'll wrap up the tithe um, series and we'll, we'll talk about um, what, what we as New Testament believers are to do. We are to be givers. We are to be, we are to give in every area of our lives, of our time, of, of everything. Amen. Okay? Amen. So God bless you guys. We'll see you again soon. Amen.